0: Hi and welcome to episode 10 of Up and Away, the Australian Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Frangu. On this week's episode, I'm joined by flight test engineer, Jeremy Sequera. Jeremy's had a really unique journey through aviation as an engineer and a private pilot, from studying a degree in aeronautical engineering at the University of Sydney, to becoming an aircraft mechanic, and to where he is today as a flight test engineer. Oh yeah, and I can't believe we're already at episode 10. I want to say a sincere thanks to absolutely everyone who tunes into the show every week. I'm constantly overwhelmed by the support of the aviation community. I'd also like to say an extra special thanks to all my guests so far too. You're all amazing and I'm constantly inspired by your stories and moved by your generosity and willingness to share your time and stories with us all. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe as well as follow us on Facebook and Instagram. So, fasten your seatbelt and let's go. Hi Jeremy, welcome to Up and Away.
1: Hey Chris, thanks for having me.
0: No worries, thanks for coming on. So, as you might be aware, I always start with this question, when did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation?
1: Thanks man, yeah. I guess it, for, for me it, it began very, very early when I was young and, I, and, and when you asked me this question I had to think about it and I, I think I'd pinpoint it back to around you know, 1991, 92, when I was really, really small, about four years old, and um, family took us on a holiday overseas and we visited family in India and Pakistan. And I guess that was my first exposure to planes. And I remember I had a, a little airline model that, that I came away with from then that was always there. So I think that that sort of sparked that enjoyment of planes. But um, what what I think really pushed me down the path of engineering and and flying was i always remember dad had a friend whose father was a, a space shuttle engineer for um wow,
0: that's pretty cool
1: yeah yeah it's, it's very cool and and he he worked on the he worked on the tiles the heat shield tiles. so uh when he found out that there was this young kid back in australia who sort of liked airplanes he sent me this little folder and it had everything and it had all these pictures of um the space probes they've sent to, you know, Jupiter. Uh, of a signed picture from astronauts, um, some fo- some photos of them building and assembling the uh, Saturn V rocket because I guess he was wow. he was around in those days. Um, yeah, it was a re- really cool little set of things that I that I still have on my, my shelf behind me here, and and I refer to I just have a look at that every now and then that uh, re really sparks the the interest and um, that that stay with me. I end up. Uh, destroying that folder from looking at looking at it too much yeah wearing it out <laughs> yeah exactly and then uh well uh, when i hit year nine and was clearly an, an aircraft nerd i uh, i joined air league which is like um the air force cadets and those guys really fostered uh, that interest in aviation with theory courses and that kind of stuff and eventually that's they have a flying um, center out at camden airport in new south wales and that's where i got my my PPL license to fly. So from you know someone having the, I guess, the nice um, attitude to send me a, a folder of, of cool things um, all the way through to being fostered by Air League, I think I've always had some sort of aviation.
0: Totally, that sounds awesome. At any point, did you want to do like an airlines thing or what was, did you have a job in mind?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I guess I never had any pilots in the family or, didn't know any pilots or anything like that, but I guess I'd, and as a lot of kids I'm sure these days only ever know of pilot as a job in aviation. I guess I I did, but I was also, I guess, maybe a bit timid and um, didn't know if I could ever do it or anything like that, but definitely once I started learning to fly, I always thought, yep, that's it, I'm going to be a pilot. But um, yes, I guess things didn't quite work out that way for me and and throughout my pilot license I guess trading, it was it was the early 2000s and um I there was a pilot shortage but it was now going to a point where by the time I was looking to finish my um PPL or, or get serious about flight training there was an excess of pilots and so there weren't as many jobs going out there and I had a quite a wise CFI at the time, who's still a, still a bit of a mentor and, and a friend I catch up with when I go visit Sydney, um, he recommended to me that I would get a degree to, to back myself mm. uh, because, you know, you may get your CPL and there may not actually be any jobs around and uh, the jobs aren't that well-paying. So even if you did one, you may struggle. So having something on the side that would support you while you completed your CPL, and maybe even starting your first flying job um, would be a a good idea because something to fall back on if, you know, the airlines stop flying. And and right now, you know, I wonder some of the people who are out of work from the airlines, if they have a tertiary degree, does it help them get another job? I'm not sure. Mm, But I I definitely found that as I went and and did that degree, I did a degree in aeronautical engineering, um, that started to become much as much of a passion and interest to me as flying was
0: so before we get into your studies as an aeronautical engineer what um you you said you worked towards your ppl what other did you get any other ratings or anything like that is that some stuff yeah yeah did you have a list of things that you're slowly taking off <laughs> yeah um, i
1: guess like most you start off with that ppl and and you look to try and get into more advanced or interesting aircraft and so for now, I've I've only got a, a constant speed unit and a um, retractable landing gear uh, ratings, and and that's been good getting into fast aeroplanes that way. Um, but uh, yeah, right now I'm working towards my CPL. As it's been about you know 15 years since I got my PPL, so it's it's nice to to restudy that stuff, professionalise, uh, sort of re- refresh the memory and the skills, yeah. <laughs> um, and get to CPL and. And in parallel, I I am going for for my night rating as well because I think that's a whole new ballpark of seeing the world differently uh, Mm. at night. It's beautiful up there. So those those are what I'm working towards at the moment.
0: So you decided to do a degree in aeronautical engineering. Where did you do the course and how did you find that course and what made you do that course?
1: Yeah, so a good question, I guess, you know, for anyone out there that are are in that um, year 12, year 11 uh, time frame in their lives you, you get asked a bunch of life questions really uh like really important life questions and, and, and you, they try to make you make a decision quite early and I guess you know that for some people gap year is it but I guess for me I knew I wanted to do aeronautical engineering based on interests and you know want to back myself up with flying um, and so I looked in I, I went to I grew up in Sydney so I went to Sydney University I chose that one Uh, There were two at the time that I could have chosen, UNSW and Sydney. And I guess I chose Sydney because, one, it was closer to my house. I could take a train directly there. But, two, I I heard that they had a fairly good um, aero program where they had a wind tunnel and you also got to um, participate in the build of a Jabiru
0: aircraft. That's cool. So,
1: yeah. And so I thought, yeah, that would be a a really interesting way to do the degree. UNSW had a lot of good merits. They were tied to ADFA. Uh, still are. And uh, they also have a back in back in those days, their their degree. If you stayed an extra year, you also got a mechanical engineering degree. So there were there were pros and cons. But um, ultimately, I chose to go to Sydney. And um, I guess for a lot of people, you know, I'm not the the person that gets everything right the first time or understands things the first time. And uh, I didn't quite get into my into aeronautical engineering straight away. I didn't get the marks to get into that course. Um, so, Sydney also offered something called a flexible first year engineering program. And I'm, I, I could have researched whether they still run that, but um, that's something to look at because what it, what it allowed me to do was do six months of a generic engineering course where you got to touch on civil engineering, um, bioengineering, bio and um, aeronautical engineering, so all that's mechanical. Cool. And if you did well enough in those subjects and got your distinction average, you were able to move sideways into any of those uh, courses. So, I did really well in those, or tried really hard with the express intent of getting into Aero. And sure enough, after that first six months, I was able to transfer sideways. So that's cool. Yeah, you know, that as is the theme of my career. Your first. Um, first attack didn't necessarily work out the way you planned and you just got to keep trying and look at all those angles and then I uh, eventually got to where I wanted to be Uh, and of course that degree was was four years where the first three are your um, learning years and then the fourth year you you marry up a thesis with your um, final year subjects and the way it was structured where the first two years are quite generic Uh, mechanical engineering and aeronautical engineering students pretty much shared the same subjects for the first two years Mm. And then in the last two years where we definitely branched out and did far more um, aeronautical-based subjects like aerodynamics, propulsion, uh, flight mechanics, uh, those topics. And those are the topics that really interested me and drove me. So I knew I'd made the right decision.
0: Did you find the more broad first-year thing was also a really good thing that set you up for what you did later?
1: Oh, definitely. And it it was because there are some topics that mechanicals and civil engineers do that maybe in more depth than aeronautical engineers. So you know, touching on a couple of things that those guys have to do with uh, you know, the earth and geotechnical type topics, and even some chemical engineering topics were, were pretty good. It wasn't very in depth. I mean, it was the first six months of the first year um, at university, but it was enough to just give you that little taste tester of, oh, that's what those guys do. So I, I thought that was a really clever way to get people into choosing their engineering path. Uh, so you didn't have to make that decision at school. Yeah, right. Or just finishing year twelve. Yeah, I
0: guess it gives you a bit of a taster, hey. Yeah,
1: and you know, going to a civ- civilian university as opposed to Adfa, you know, that also gave me a, a different taste because you know you're responsible for your own study. Uh, no one's paying you like they pay you at Adfa, and no one's drilling you like a um, Air Force sergeant <laughs> <Sartre> or something.
0: <laughs> no you one's going to for that. Yeah,
1: yeah. If you fail those subjects, you 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 know you're up for that money via hex to. To pay for the next semester
0: totally what was the balance like between theory and more practical aspects in the course so i'm not
1: sure how it goes today so i graduated in 2009 so it's been quite a while but um, back then they were actually doing quite a good job of balancing the practical with the theory so uh, not necessarily um, every subject but for a good majority of the subjects, you did some practical practical components so you went and ran the wind tunnel um, we went and designed an actual wing box structure like a, a spar wing box type structure and then cool. load it loaded it up in a lab so we had to do all the riveting all the cutting all the folding of the metal and then we went and load tested in the lab and made sure that our yield load and then ultimate load breaking strength was perfect uh, and, and we were marked on the success of our our design so Whoa. very very cool uh, similar type things for chemical engineering with um well, some of the materials engineering i should say with breaking strength of some materials. And then, of course, we had that Jabiru that I mentioned. Um, mm. And th- at that stage, I had already got a PPL, but some of the students um, who weren't into flying, uh, during I think it was third year, the university paid for them to get a couple of hours in um, light aircraft to go do some hands-on flying. Oh, so that's cool. Yeah, I think they, they were doing a really good job back then of um, trying to get you more practical. Practical experience as an engineer because that was super valuable when you actually try and design something.
0: Yeah, I guess it gives you that sort of broader perspective of the whole thing from, say, flying to, you know, the real hands on construction of these components as well. Yeah. And I would love to have done that as a kid,
1: <laughs> all yeah. of that stuff. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, even the, I
1: remember the university day where they, you know, get you to come in and see whether you even like it when you're 10 or 11. The practical aspect was designing a paper airplane to go the furthest possible distance and, and carry a payload. So it was all, it was always a it was a ratio of how much payload versus how much distance. And so you know you could have light payload, long distance, or you could wrap a brick with a piece of paper and drop <laughs> it, and you know you could try and get that balance. So uh, yeah, I, th- I think uh, degrees hopefully are still following that trend and, and really trying to uh, train you up. And I guess uh, that that's where I. I um, got into uh, my mechanics job by being in, the, in, in third year. We were expected to do work experience and you had to do three months. And uh, I guess building on from that aircraft structures example where you know, we were responsible for filing out all the bend radii and the, the reliefs for rivets and all that kind of stuff for joints. Um, and you learn that you can't just design something in some way because a mechanic is not going to be able to build it or repair it uh, it was a really valuable experience so uh, when we were asked to do work experience in the third year of uni I uh, looked around and I talked to a, a pilot out at uh, Camden who was also a mechanic and he got me a job at Bankstown Airport as an aircraft mechanic.
0: That's cool and, and you did that for uh, what was it three months you said?
1: Yeah so uh, I started off with three months which was a um, just the work experience purely I, I kept a logbook and Uh, turned up every day and and just tried to learn as much as I can about um, aircraft structures, how how maintenance actually works. I had no idea at that time, didn't know tools from any other tools and uh, (laughs) eventually I do not have to start buying my own little tool set and then those guys were were happy with my work and nice enough to offer me a a full-time job uh, or a part-time job, sorry, around university uh, for the remainder of my time at uni and and even after that. So um, That's cool.
0: Yeah. What was your day-to-day job like as an aircraft mechanic? I would have no idea what someone does as an aircraft mechanic. (laughs) Actually, I don't know (laughs) a lot about a lot of things being just a student pilot. So,
1: (laughs) I think through this podcast, you're certainly uh, learning learning a lot. Slowly. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So I guess as a mechanic, you sort of just walk in every morning, bright and early, and uh, there are a number of planes there that customers have brought in. So the um, owners have brought their brought their plane to you for some level of maintenance whether it be a 50 hour inspection 100 hour inspection or um, even just I guess incidental maintenance of um, you know this this wheel is is tracking left all I'm tracking left all the time and I don't know why or um, I need my plane always rolls right and I don't know why or there's hail damage or um, I've hit a bird or you know, i've got a big chip in my prop you know i need need help so or i've got an oil leak you know all that kind of stuff that just happens so same as your as your motor car so i guess you prioritize that work depending on uh, when it's due out and you just get to work so there's the the way it all works is there's a series of manuals that tell you how to maintain the aircraft and obviously there are some very experienced licensed people who also know how to uh, you know, troubleshoot, fault find an aircraft. So if that combination of those two things, as a, as a rookie, I would sit there and be directed by those guys on how to do the work. Um, and they would even tell me, okay, we'll go look in the manual. What does it say about the relief or the, um, the amount of blend we can take out of this corrosion before we have to replace the actual skin of the aircraft? So, um, or how much, uh, how many rivets do I need to put in on this, this lap repair? So, I guess it was very varied and, and following in those guys' footsteps. So, I guess one thing I should say is that if you want to be a mechanic, the way to do that is not necessarily through a degree, it's through TAFE. And I'm sure in future podcasts, you'll, you'll talk to someone who is an actual licensed aircraft maintenance engineer or so a LAME. Um, but I was working with LAMEs above me and then AMEs or aircraft maintenance engineers who um, were still training at TAFE. And they were sort of worked at this, I worked at the same level as them just as a uh, university student. And so all my work I couldn't really sign for. I wasn't signing for anything. I was just working under their yeah. supervision and they would show me how to um, do the work and then they would uh, make sure it was done properly, checking all the talks that I did, checking everything properly and then they would uh, sign for it. So it's a little bit of burden on the company to to have me um, do that work, but uh, they were really good and they they needed all the help they could get. So
0: mm. Totally. Yeah,
1: it's very um, interesting work, and I really, really enjoyed it. And um, like, I still have some of the greatest memories and some of the best friendships I made were from people that I to work with. I like gained another mentor working through as a mechanic, and um, at Bankstown, and still in touch with that family today. Um, and I guess as a pilot, the confidence you gain by knowing where everything is on the aeroplane, how it works. Um, the inspection criteria for it where the weak points are how it's designed and built like the confidence you gain in the aeroplane that you fly is uh, just incredible and and i'd challenge like most pilots to when you when you go and hire a plane from a marcher field or something how much do you know about its history um, have you talked to mechanics that work on it um, you know how much do you trust the aircraft that you're flying and and I, I think being a mechanic first and understanding compressions and, you know, some of the telltale signs that a airplane is getting towards some issue um, is is really good. And, and also it really uh, sharpens your, uh, your pre-flight checks, you know, where to look, mm. you know, you know yeah. what, what this means. And you might also uh, pick up things in the air like a, a little flicker in an EGT or um, or a cylinder head temperature on one cylinder that's looking a bit look just a little bit off you know you might hear something feel something in the controls you know i might check that uh turn or something i'll get him to look at it in the next inspection so that's um that's all stuff which i think you could really uh, that, that really benefits a pilot
0: yeah, totally. And I feel like as pilots, we're sort of trained to look into more of that stuff than, say, if you're driving a car anyway because you can't pull over when you're in the sky. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's definitely added benefit for going that next sort of stage.
1: Yeah, and I mean, stage. Well, that's why the system has us inspecting airplanes every 50 and 100 hours. And mm. why, it's, why it costs a lot and why it's, um, uh, I guess, so regulated. It's because it is <laughs> it's critical that they work 100% of the time, flawlessly, when were, we
0: we're airborne. So, totally. Yeah. What was the um, most annoying job you ever had as an aircraft mechanic? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, sure there's something. <laughs> there are, and
1: I guess I, I'm, I'm a very uh, short person so and quite small frame, so I was always the guy, and of course, <laughs> I was the university student that was learning to be an engineer of how to design these airplanes in future. Or design the mods for these airplanes. So I was always yelled at, to get in the back of that airplane, and, you know, lay down and you're, you're crawling through a, through the tail doing control cable oh. checks or, or turn checks. And that's okay. That's fine. But you're also given, I was also given a lot of uh, crap jobs to, to help me understand why you should not design something in a certain way. Um, uh, <laughs> so yeah, these are 1950s, 60s designs. And so you know, trying to retrofit heaters or avionics and various stuff into them, you you know, you come across some pretty poor designs, and um, mm. you know, So I think the the worst two jobs would have to be on a on a Baron or, or a uh, like a Beechcraft aircraft where the wing bolts to to get to the wing bolts, which you had to replace under airworthiness directive every however many hundred hours, they were the worst. You would spend a whole day trying to just slowly get a tiny oh. little turn off of it and pull it out, <laughs> and then you have to sort of move things around. and uh, You know, you're, you're lying at weird angles and stuff, and your hands are frozen in the cold of winter. And, yeah, So that, that was the worst. And then I think the other one was installing a heater in a barren. That was equally a, a, a terrible job. A really annoying job, I should say
0: all these uh beachcraft owners are just like (laughs) (laughs) annoying all their lamies and Uh, and this is another thing like
1: if you're if you're going to go buy an airplane go talk to a mechanic about how hard some of the maintenance jobs are because Mm. that that will inform your labor costs of you know if it it takes me five seconds to undo every panel on the aircraft like a cessna but then i have this yak 18t which is a, a quite an exotic airplane we looked at where Everything is a flat-bladed screwdriver and it's oh. a curved, <laughs> curved little um, slot where a standard screwdriver doesn't fit inside. You're like, ah, oh, and that job now, instead of taking five minutes, takes about 45 minutes to, to get all the panels off, that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it, i, I got to say, you know, none of the jobs particularly, you particularly know, rubbish or anything. You, you always complain about every job you're on because that's just what <laughs> – that's what engineers it's and mechanics get do. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly yeah. how you get through it, by swearing at the aeroplane.
0: Sounds like you worked on quite a few diverse aircraft, like from the Yak to, you know, Barons and a whole bunch of beach crafts that uh, apparently no one should buy because they're really hard to work, <laughs> work on no, Do not paraphrase,
1: <laughs> do not put words in my mouth. I didn't say
0: that. I think they're a great aircraft. But, uh, yeah. yeah, we,
1: we, we worked on, uh, on quite a few. And I think, I'm not sure for uh, a lot of maintenance space, but, I know Air Ag in, in Bankstown when I did my work um, were a, a great little company of really experienced guys who, uh, you know, cut their teeth. Or the plane, you know, not the plane, the company really started working on beavers and radial engines. So we had a lot of radial engineer craft come in because of that experience that the company held. So cool. you know the Yaks that I mentioned, but we had um, a Beech Staggerwing coming one day, which oh, I'm not cool. sure if you know, yeah, it's got the, yeah. the lower wing is forward of the aft and uh, of the upper wing. Um, I know we had the, the Wiraway and uh, boomerang and, uh, you know, come, come in from, I think tomorrow sent some aircraft over once. Uh, we had the Catalina and that was parked at Bankstown, which is still there unfortunately, but you know, we did a lot of initial work at the start when they thought they were able to get that thing airworthy. Um, And it's just some cool personal aircraft, like um, the Lake Buccaneer. That was one of my favourite, the the little seaplane. Um, And I guess one contract that we had that was very fond of the work that we did was uh, the Sydney Seaplanes Beavers. I don't know if you send around there, the red and white uh, beavers on floats, um, they were based out of uh, Rose Bay in Sydney, and they used to land on the Hawkesbury River next to the, not the Hawkesbury, I say it all the time, the uh, uh, Georges River next to Bankston Airport and we would crane them out, the police would block the traffic on the main road there at George's Hall, and then we'd uh, tow the plane on a little trailer into the airport across all the traffic. Wow. Yeah, That's and then, um, yeah, then we'd just, you know, rip them apart and get all the salt and corrosion off of them. And, and re, uh, sometimes, like, one of them we rebuilt it pretty much, a so brand-new engine, brand-new uh, wings, reskin the wings. It was just a – I used to love working on those things there. That's why they're still flying. So they're well built and they're just beautiful airplanes. So really diverse um, airplanes, and then of course you know all the Cessnas and Pipers.
0: Yeah, it looks like seaplanes in particular, you know, have quite demanding uh, maintenance required to you know keep them going, particularly the rust and corrosion thing.
1: Yeah, I mean these things would sit, you know, in that water when they weren't airborne. They were always sitting in salt water at uh, at Rose Bay, and so you know you'd have the little anode on the aircraft which is a sacrificial piece of metal that um, you know as the salt goes in the electrons transfer and you actually degrade the, the little anode as opposed to the middle of the aircraft and you put a fresh one on every hundred and you, it'd come back and you know it'd be shriveled and you're like whoa, whoa. yeah and there'd be barnacles for you to to, <laughs> to chip off the <laughs> bottom off. of it yeah it's just yeah they, they get your drag blown. barnacles <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> uh, yeah so they work cause and that's again it's why we clean them properly every every hundred mm.
0: so after that job where did you go from there what did you move on to
1: so i finished my degree at the, in the middle of 2009 and um that's and i was still working at ag for the rest of 2009 but i was now applying for uh, professional engineering jobs and I got offered a few, but I chose to take one with the Department of Defence in the um, – it was what was then called the D- Defence Materiel Organisation, and that was like the uh, civilian branch of the military, which sits, you know, parallel alongside the, the military. And they do a lot of support roles where they um, help with acquisitions of, of, aircraft and, uh, of aircraft, tanks, whatever, and um, sustainment of those um, items of the, of the inventory. And the particular job I got was a, a gra- another graduate program. So, again, for any engineers that are listening to this, that are finishing up their degrees, a graduate program is, is excellent because you get to touch on a variety of um, areas. And, of course, as an aeronautical engineer, they sent me to a, an aviation unit, so a, a program office that managed the P3 Orions down in, in Adelaide. So I packed up, left um, Sydney, uh, and actually, that was a tough decision to whether to take that job or stay as a mechanic So I loved it so much. I loved the hands mm, of work. Yeah, right. And I don't know whether sitting behind a desk pushing a pen was for me. And, uh, you know, the advice of that mentor mechanic of mine, he goes, No, mate, look, there are some bigger things in store for you to go, go follow the, the engineering. And I went, Okay. Uh, and that was one of the strongest uh, pushes I had to, to go. So I did. And uh, I never regret it because that was that. Put me out of my uh, comfort zone of Sydney and maybe move out of home and, and move to Adelaide. And so I was an aeronautical engineer. It was, it was in my title block of my email, <laughs> and, I, and cool. I worked for um, the P three program office uh, down in Adelaide, and and was helping doing you know little repair jobs and designs of repair of how much again just like anything else we did at Airag, which again this really helped uh, blending out damage, blending out corrosion, uh, holes for drain for drainage of uh, water and that was collecting in the aircraft um you know, anything like that that was that was sort of uh related to the sustainment and keeping the p3 flying so it just sort of helped on little jobs like that and um decided i, I really enjoyed it so it uh, it paid reasonably well and i was intellectually stimulated by the work so so i re- and i managed to keep flying while i was down in Adelaide at, at uh, the local clubs so you know life was good and Uh, You know, that was a six-month rotation and then the next rotation took me to uh, Nara in New South Wales where I worked on the Seahawk helicopter for three months and did uh, Mm, a very similar job, just sustainment work on little brackets and uh, modifications to that aircraft with the Navy. So um, it was during that time, that it was basically two weeks into that stint at Nowra that I uh, got offered the job uh, at, it's called... um, Air Warfare Engineering Squadron, and it's a, it's part. It, I guess it's part of what we call the Air Warfare Centre, the sort of uh, test and evaluation centre of expertise in um, in defence or in the Air Force, I should say. And I guess I, I started. That was my first full time aeronautical engineering job outside of the graduate program. So I left the graduate program to take on that role. And I guess this was a dream job for me because uh, there were only three civilian um, aeronautical enge- or two civilian aeronautical engineers in that, in that job, in that wow. uh, unit. And uh, one of them moved on and said so just at the right time I was there, I applied and I got it. And uh, that was a dream job for about for almost seven years where I uh, was doing all the mechanical design for flight test. So when we were uh, testing uh, F-18 or PC-9 or C130, um, C-130J c 130 or KC-30 or whatever it was, uh, you have to install a camera to collect some test data. You have to install mm-hmm. sensors like accelerometers or strain gauges to get your um, accelerations and movements of the aircraft as well as your strain and loads on the aircraft. Uh, so I was doing all the mechanical engineering design behind that. And it was the best like i i loved that job and uh it was varied it was interesting i had a really good team around me it was very flexible so really quick fire tasks to to get um cameras installed or uh, Mm. help with weapons releases or whatever it was so um you know very very and one of the the last bastions of hands-on engineering in defense where we built these things in-house so i'll design pen and paper just like i did at uni with a a piece of graph paper and a pencil and a ruler and uh, do my force moment calculations and stress and strain.
0: That's cool. And then
1: I'd work with a drafter and have that drawn up in, in CAD. And then we would walk it across the road to the machine shop and we'd uh, have it built. And I would, you know, they, they'd they come back and tell me when I was stupid, saying, Hey, that rivet <laughs> hole is in the wrong place. Or you can't put the bend radius here. Even though CAD might've worked, we can't do that on our machine, whatever it is. So yeah, that was an excellent job.
0: Did you then have a lot of hands-on experience with the aircraft too? In order to
1: design something bespoke, unique for a flight test, I would go out to the aircraft. So uh, back at, back then, we had two Hornets and the PC 9s out at, uh, at Edinburgh. <clears throat> Whereas mm-hmm. any of the other platforms that I needed to work with, I would have to travel interstate, like C one hundred and thirty KC thirty, and go measure up those aircraft. So. I would go there with tape measure, ruler, camera, me and and a drafter and we would uh, start um, – and, you know, this is where some of the aircraft we couldn't get drawings from them because they're based overseas. Um, So it was us actually reverse engineering what's on the aircraft to to then build our design. And so, yeah, I'd have to climb on the aircraft and and measure it all up, take photos, you know, just see what the materials were – Know, what color coding I might have to to match everything to, so it doesn't intrude on the on the test flight or on the cockpit design. Um, yes, it was really cool that we got to. It, that was one of the things that kept me going. You know, theoretical uh, writing type job, and writing reports and writing your your analysis. The bit that kept me going was definitely the fact that I was now getting to go out to the airplane and and then work on it. And then when the design was built, we would go. Um, Test fit it to the aircraft, and uh, you know there's a there's a Jeremy's wall of shame sitting next to my my old desk, which I walk past every <laughs> now and then of things that didn't quite fit the first time, despite my oh. my best guess. Uh, it, it got smaller and smaller as the years <laughs> as years went on, but it was uh, it was definitely a reminder. That's where you know if you don't make mistakes, you're not learning, and mm. uh, I certainly learn a lot of uh, good lessons out of how to design things, how to communicate design to people so that it is what they want it to be and and all that so as an engineer that's often the hardest part is communication and as you see in all the movies and stuff and all the memes (laughs) but uh, yeah being able to to i guess elicit design requirements out of someone and turn that into something is part of the art of being an engineer
0: is there also then that interaction with the pilots who will be flying the plane Um, is there stuff that they need to be aware of that you need to communicate to them or uh, getting them to do certain things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was also one of the the cooler part of the jobs is that um, air warfare engineering squadron sat right next to the aircraft research development unit who, or RGU, who who we um, predominantly did all our designs for. So RGU would come in with a flight test task and, they would say, yeah, we need cameras, we need this, we need this, and we would then design that stuff. So we would be getting our requirements, a lot of the requirements, the user requirements came from them. So the flight test engineer or the test pilot would say, I need to record these parameters from the aircraft. And we would then as the engineers go, okay, what, where can we get that data from? So we can install a, a recorder, which um, records off the aircraft computers or the bus, and gives us the um, the specific parameters like roll rate, pitch angle, um, angle of attack, whatever it is, um, fuel states, all that kind of stuff. Um, or if it wasn't available on the bus, or we couldn't get the uh, the data that would allow us to tap into the bus, uh, we might be able to record that with an actual temperature sensor on on the wheel or a a camera in the cockpit that's recording the displays or just, the, you know, like a HDMI cable out of the back of the display into a video recorder, you know, stuff like that. So we would work with the test pilots and flight test engineers to do, do all that kind of stuff, as well as, um, I guess, get the ergonomics right. So if we were designing a rack, a computer seat, something that they were sitting at to, to get their data, um, we'd be looking at, you know, how do you want this presented? Do you want two monitors, four monitors? Um, and then how high do you want to be sitting up off the, off the ground and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it was practical stuff as well as the actual data that they needed.
0: So now you're a flight test engineer. Yeah. What is a flight test engineer?
1: Yeah, good good question there because uh, I know everyone has uh, has definitely heard of a test pilot and, and classically you just see this person in a fast jet flying around, throwing an aer- airplane around. And I guess where the flight test engineer came in, like many decades ago now, they identified that you know there's a team of engineers that support every test activity and in many, many cases you'll need that engineer to go airborne to help out the test pilot. And so I guess what after test pilot school they gave us the skills, in addition to all that confidence stuff I talked about, the actual practical skills and techniques that we were learning were about uh, how to write test plans, how to uh, write what manoeuvres or decide what manoeuvres we need to fly to Collect certain types of data, and then how to collect that data, and, and what data was important for whatever kind of manoeuvre you're you're trying to trying to pull. So if you're trying to analyse, you know, roll performance of an aircraft, you're trying to get the roll rate. You're trying to get whatever altitude and airspeed you're at, because that that affects that. So uh, we've sort of learned the science behind it in order to be able to collect the right data to characterise that part of the aircraft. And so, what my job actually is is to, you know, day to day is to firstly program manage a test program. So we go in there and we figure out timelines and, and everything. And then we um also then then we decide what test techniques do we need to apply to answer the question that a customer's come at come at us with. Uh, and we work with the test pilots to figure that out because you know they have the experience in the jet or in the aircraft to to know um what maneuvers they should fly and then uh, we're familiar with that terminology, we're familiar with the manoeuvres and the roles that those guys perform, and then we go away with that and come up with a nice structured table that tells us the order of the test flight, where it is, um, the heights, the airspeeds, um, what conditions the part needs to stabilise on to then conduct the manoeuvre. Um, even on, base, on, on other types of tests we're organising, okay, I need this many um, crew attendants or I need this many load masters and I need them to be uh, looking at this. We're basically defining the test so that it's fully mm-hmm. controlled and fully documented. Uh, and then we're saying that it's we're, we're trying to make sure that's as safe as it, can, as it can be. And that that is the test planning process, so to make sure you've got good test integrity and to make sure that you're safe in, in whatever you're testing. So that's where the flight test engineer comes in. We apply that engineering mindset to, to make the test happen. And then in the cases where we where we need to go airborne, we then do the briefing with the test part. We will then brief the, the mission, uh, so sit at the table and tell everyone what we're doing that day, uh, what data we're collecting, how we're going to do it. We talk about the phrases that we're going to use, um, everything. So there should be no surprises in the air. So mm. it, it should we want be it to be everything. super clear.
0: And exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: We've all seen yeah. that kind of thing in 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 movies, uh, but then when we get airborne. A flight test engineer you know we sit in the back seat we sit on the flight deck we sit at a computer station in the cargo bay wherever it might be uh and we will one of us might be there might be a few of us on board we'll direct the pilot so we'll say all right pilot uh you know first test point is at twenty-five thousand feet uh, three hundred knots uh once you're on condition let us know and we'll begin the test point and they'll say you yeah, know on condition you'll you, you might brief what the maneuver is uh, brief the safety limits uh, anything like that, pertinent information that the pilot needs to collect and then what information I'm collecting and then they'll conduct the test manoeuvre, they'll fly the aeroplane and we'll uh, hand write press record on the camera, press record on the, the data recorder, whatever it is that we're using to collect information and, and we'll make sure that we get the data during that test point. Um, mm-hmm. Once the test point's complete, we'll then uh, make sure that we have the data we need before we move on to the next one. And if anything strange happened, we'll discuss it. We might have, we might even have bought the test point if something weird happens. So we might terminate it early or uh, mm-hmm. wait till it's finished and then discuss the weird thing that we saw before progressing or maybe even going home. So uh, the, mm-hmm. tester, the the flight test engineer also acts as like a test director in the air and, and make sure it all goes to plan, that we get what we need. And then at the end of that mission, we run the debrief mm-hmm. and go over all the data we collected, make sure it's all there, make sure we don't need to repeat anything. And then we do that for however many flights we need for the program and then call it a day there and call test complete. And then it's the test engineer's job to also write the test report.
0: I was um, just about to ask that.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this oh, I
0: don't, know. I don't like where this is going.
1: <laughs> I know, man. So, uh, you know, test pilots, uh, I'm sure you're going to interview them and and uh, I'll cop flack for this, but they – they earn their money in, that, in those manoeuvres and flying them and keeping that plane spot on condition and stuff and knowing how to manhandle an aeroplane around the sky they, in their study and all that stuff. But uh, definitely when it comes to the report writing and all that, uh, we do the legwork and we drag in their comments. So we'll ask them, is this correct? Is this what you saw in the air? Mm-hmm. Here's, the, here's the, the data and the strip charts I made that show what we saw does this agree with your qualitative comments? Your, what what you thought happened, and uh, we, yeah, we form an argument with them. We write the report, and then send that out. And I guess that's that in a nutshell is what a flight test engineer does from A to B. So, it's quite quite a lot to it, and so really cool job.
0: Yeah, it sounds really cool. So, how did you get into it?
1: So, I think what uh, what is kind of funny was when I first sat down at desk as an aeronautical engineer. Um, I saw a, a little booklet for test pilot school and I laughed at the guy next to me and said, hey, wouldn't it be good if uh, I get work to pay for me to do this course? And we all laughed and I, I remember putting it in the bin. And, uh, you know, through, throughout those six, seven years at that job, I kept wishing I was the, the engineer who was then taking my design and going flying with it. I was like mm. that has got to – I didn't know that job existed when I was at university or uh, even a kid. And I was like, that has got to be the best job in the world to go you know, be a test engineer on any of these platforms and go fly them um, and apply your engineering skills airborne and, and you know just a really cool job and that never stopped that never went away to the point where I was ready to leave that job and try and pursue that myself by going to America because uh, in Australia the only real way you could get that flight test engineering role was joining the air force and I could have done that. I could have joined the Air Force, but I'd already spent six, seven years in the Air Force environment and didn't want to go back to square one as a flying officer, um, go to officer training school and start from the bottom and not be guaranteed that I could get into test. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause then I, then I have to build up about six years worth of experience before I'd be allowed to apply for the test job again. And I thought that's just too much time. You know, I'd, I'd just been recently married, um, you know, I didn't want to drag my wife around all around Australia um, with posting cycles and stuff. So, um, but thankfully, I guess I had some really good people looking out for me in um, in the right places. And at that time, we'd had a few um, Air Force members leave to to go take employment overseas, um, and they were flight test engineers and test pilots that left. And so, one of the options for trying to keep people in the unit was trying to have a civilian in the unit. So um, they created a civilian flight test engineer job. It took them about two years to to get all the paperwork sorted because it had never been done before. Yeah. And certainly still hasn't been done uh, after me. And, yeah, eventually they um, they made it happen. There was a lot of you know stress in those two years of will it, won't it. Yes, no, it's it's happening. It's not happening, all that stuff. But... Yeah, the right uh, decisions were made for me, and uh, eventually got sent to test pilot school. So yeah, it
0: was just a dream come true. Wow, it's pretty amazing. So, what's test pilot school look like? I can't even begin to fathom.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll make sure you, you talk to a test pilot for that from their for their perspective in future. But uh, from a test engineer's perspective, and, um, and definitely a, a junkie like me who you know loves everything that flies, <laughs> it was. It's still the best year of, of my life, even as a, as a married man, our, our life collectively, because we went to, to England and, and got to live out of uh, Salisbury in the UK uh, for a year. That's cool. And uh, I drove a, a Jaguar for a, for a year, a sports oh. car, but just because you know when you're in England, you've got to buy a sports car. Um, totally. And then, Was it green? No, I wanted it to be oh. the British racing green, but I couldn't, yeah. couldn't find one, couldn't find one. Um, that's all right
0: I think you've got enough kudos as it is it's pretty
1: good yeah I broke down so many times but it's all right (laughs) uh we we went to uh so you drive out to Boscombe down and there it was that's the home of British test and it was just amazing that uh, that school like it it went by in a blink of an eye but the whole time you were you were stressed out for a good reason I suppose you're cramming what I felt was like a two, three-year course or degree into a year, and you're trying to balance everything from um, like the theory subjects and exams to your your ability to operate in the air, and then also your knowledge on the aircraft that you're flying in to keep yourself safe, So, uh, and you're doing multiple subjects at the time, uh, multiple projects at the time. So uh, it was an experience, and I guess um, it covered on a lot of topics that I had done at university, but I'd done that 10 years prior. So it was a good recap of all that stuff, but mm. it was an absolute fire hose that, you know, you, your ability to learn things quickly and adapt and be comfortable with, I guess is something that was said to us being comfortable with being uncomfortable um, was key. And you get that absolutely slammed into you throughout the whole year. So that now that we've come back, I, I'm not so worried about deadlines anymore. Like, I know I'll make it. I know I can do it. I'm confident. Yeah. You can um, speak at meetings and you can speak with confidence in your skills. And um, you definitely, when someone tells you, all right, your next trial is going to be on an F-18, you need to get up to speed with that aircraft. You go, all right, I'll do it. And you just go figure out what you need to know and, and go do it. So that that is what, I guess, test particle was like. It was an absolute fire hose of trying to make you more, Confident and um, more of an engineer and tester.
0: So, when you're at Test Pilot School, what kind of planes were you flying?
1: So, the school has a, a fleet of aircraft that they try to, that they keep on hand to try and challenge us because they're deficient in some way. There's something about them that um, is challenging, that's not necessarily well designed. Um, that means that we can cap, find those issues and report on them. So you don't want something that perfect that's perfect in every way, so that we, we're not learning anything that way. So we had, uh, I guess, a, a short Takano, which is very much like a PC nine, but without the uh, the um, G suit. So that was interesting for some of the guys that flew that. Um, but I spent most of my time in a in an Alpha jet, which is a two seat training jet, very much like a a, a Nat or a uh, miniature Hawk, I suppose, a bit lighter, lighter Hawk. But we also had a Hawk, which we flew, and uh, the transport aeroplane class that we flew was an RJ-100, which is like the BAE-146 that you see with the four under-slung engines. Uh, so between those aircraft, you know, we they were based at the school we did most of our activities on and, um, and projects. And I guess uh, the school also does its best uh, to get you flights in, in very random aircraft to try and demonstrate some issues and then You also do a final thesis project, I guess. It's called a preview um, where you assess a a random airplane and and assess it for a specific role. So um, I guess when we went away from the school, uh, the few aircraft that I got to fly, we flew a Gripen, which I'm not sure if you've heard that, like the Saab Gripen. It's a Swedish jet fighter. But the reason we flew that was it was the – Fly by wire jet fighter. It's like a frontline fighter, so it had a lot of systems working it. The, the plane had some digital stuff that you could muck around with um, with its flight control laws, and um, you could get. We went Mac One in that aircraft, which is pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I, yeah. That was one of my bucket list items that I never knew I'd get to tick off. So that was pretty cool, and that was over the, the um, Black Sea over in, in Sweden. So that was actually even, even more cool Whoa. than get to be out there, uh, and then. For my thesis we flew across to or preview we flew across to washington dc and went down to um, patuxent river or pax river uh, down in maryland and we went to the u.s navy test pilot school and uh, borrowed one of their t-38 talon aircraft so trainers and got to fly that for for my um, final flight or my preview flight
0: for wow.
1: course here yeah. And uh, at the same time, we got to fly a couple of helicopters as well, which was the helicopters, i got to say, I'm a fixed-wing dude, but that was some of the best fun I've, I've had, on, I had on course, getting to fly something where every part of your body is trying to fly and it's just yeah. magic. And <laughs> those dudes, like I'm sure you're going to interview a helicopter pilot, um, that's, hats off to those guys because that was a very cool aircraft to, to fly.
0: I talk about that often where I'm like, oh, I can't imagine doing that. It seems so hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's like juggling
1: yeah it was surprising how quickly it, it comes and i, I mean, i'm sure those guys can talk more to it but i found that the biggest challenge was that when when you're very close to the ground and small movements you know make a large difference because you're so close your point of reference is close so you kind of have to look far away into the distance and keep yourself centered and level and hovering by uh, looking into the distance so uh, yeah really cool and obviously a lot of stick and rudder skills come into that as you gain more experience and i'm sure you, you can fly by the city of pants in, in no time but uh, those were really really cool aircraft to fly um, and i guess uh one thing i didn't mention just was that uh the, the way the school is structured and, and what you actually get up to on a day-by-day basis and, and i guess what you, you start with theory subjects in the morning and you, you get slammed you have to have read the subject the night before and be ready for all the questions. You're in a group of, oh. and, and you can't hide like in a lecture theater. You've got 12 of you or 10 of you or less uh, sitting there with the, the lecturer. And as they're going through, you know, it's seven in the morning, you've already started talking high level mathematics or um, flight dynamics questions. And they stop and they ask you directly. They, they point at you and go, all right, Jeremy, <laughs> Jazza, what's your, what, what do you think? And you go, uh, is it this? And you know, you're, um, Performance on the course is graded as much by your ability to answer those questions and participate in class as anything else. Yeah, so, wow. um, so, you've got to be on top of your stuff. So, it means the night before or the morning off or you're having breakfast, you're going through the slides, making sure you know the theory before the class. And then, um, after those classes finish, there's about three or four sessions of those. It's now, you know, late morning and the first wave of flying begins. So, uh, a student and an instructor or the student pilot and the student FTE will go up and, on a sortie, and it could be a practice flight for just getting your currencies up. It could be a um, practice mission with an instructor where they're just introducing you to a topic like longitudinal stability or lateral stability or something. Um, then there's ones where you, once you, once you've all done those practice sorties, uh, you and the student pilot get to go up together, and you go out and practice those maneuvers, those data writing techniques uh, and directing your test pilot around type techniques because, your next flight will then be a a practical where you two are expected to collect some data and report on it. So I'm actually using Mm -hmm. the instrumentation of the aeroplane, riding with my um, knee pad and and collecting as much information and comments as possible to form an argument about the aeroplane's lateral directional stability problems or whatever it was that you're looking at. And then after you've done that data collection flight, you, um, you're done with that topic and you've got to write a report on it. And so when you're not flying, you're then um, doing the sorry the, uh, exam, the exam study or the assignments that are not airborne-based, so coding assignments or data reduction assignments as an engineer, um, or you're writing your test plan or test cards for the upcoming flights that you've got to do with your pilot, or... You're writing the test report for the one that you've just finished. And those things train smash into each other. They try as much Whoa. as they can to have them in series, but when weather delays you or aircraft goes on serviceability, the, the course mm, schedule didn't stop and you just got pushed into the into the gap. And so you're constantly working on something. And at the same time you've got to be you know all over your emergency procedures and aircraft speeds and stuff. So wow. um you can't do it by yourself. And as a course group, you're looking after each other and sharing notes and not sharing answers, but if you've made a, a little gouge cut on how to fly the alpha jet, you you share that around and everyone contributes to each other's progression that way. And you you form really good bonds. And and I guess that, that the two biggest uh two coolest takeaways from test part school was. The, the friendships we made, like that we suffered through that course together. We suffered and enjoyed it <laughs> together. Um, you know, we had some epic times that, you know, we went to Portugal for a simulator, um, wow. you know, went over to the States. We just you know, tripped around England on various flights. And, um, I guess the, the, the second thing that we, uh, we take away is just that, um, there was a point where I just thought to myself, how is this happening? Uh, like you, you've got to test part school and I've just done three flights in an Alpha jet with an instructor and he's now signed me off as safe to be a backseater in this jet. And the pilot in the front seat, he's a Hercules pilot. He has done six hours in the Alpha jet and they've now <laughs> si- signed him off cleared hot to captain the aircraft with me in the back. Now, So collectively of less than 10 hours... And yeah, two, we're in his jet. Yeah, and the t- two of you idiots are taxiing out, reading checklists to each other, you know, my brakes, your brakes, taxi on. You know, you're checking all your, your cautions, your, your temperatures on the lineup, and then the next thing you know, the two of you are airborne, um, having not ejected at 300 feet or something like that. And you're going, oh, my God, it's just the two of us up here, southern England, uh, cloud bashing in an Alpha jet. And you're just like, what is happening? How, yeah how did, that so, sounds amazing. So, yeah, those those two things just the, the friendships and then just the the wow factor of how did how did someone think i was competent enough to, to be here uh <laughs> and, and and again you prove it to yourself because you get back safely you know your drills when there is an emergency or something like that you're, you're happy um yeah it was uh
0: it was <laughs> it was the time of my life yeah it sounds amazing i think uh that should inspire a lot of people to sort of you know, aim to follow and go down that path, particularly if it's like a career and a pathway that no one thought was possible. So, mm. you know, I think it's a seldom heard job prospect and, you know, area of study, I think.
1: No, oh, no, I totally agree. And, and I'm trying to as much as I can get it out there that it is a career because we're always needing flight test engineers to, and test pilots because the, uh, the Air Force posts them out every three years and, you know, we, mm. because we always have a constant flow of people and fresh ideas and all that. But um, a lot of people don't necessarily want to move on and some of them leave to industry. So that means they can't come back to the unit. And so, you know, there's always a, a, a need for them. So if you get the Air Force, you know, and, and as an engineer, this is a, a really achievable path for anyone.
0: Very cool. So then you went back to Australia and you became... A flight test engineer. <laughs> yeah, so just
1: just like that, uh, my signature block now changed from aeronautical engineer to yeah. <laughs> to flight test engineer, and I guess I um I don't know I just had a really blessed start to that uh, time at, at Ardu. I, I moved up to Brisbane, and um, the first task that I got placed on was a air, air refuelling trial between kc thirty and a P eight Poseidon. So, um, you know I was rushing in those first few months in January, February to get all my currencies and medicals up to date and just be, a, be able to fly airborne again and then um, you know, do some preliminary flights in a PC-9 to get myself um, categorised to, to operate in airplanes. And then next thing you know, we are off to Pax River or Patuxent River um, in Maryland in the US, again, where US Navy Test Park School is based, but uh, this is also where their test centre is also based. That all their test units are there for the Navy. And so we were now taking our KC-30 there, and that involved the whole test team. It was about five or six of us, um, plus the maintenance crew, plus the actual KC-30 pilots. Um, we flew that aircraft across via Hawaii and then over wow. to uh, to Pax River. And it's just, you know, I've always wanted to, I grew up in a time just after it was allowed to, you're allowed to see the cockpit, and I never actually...
0: Um, oh right! Yeah,
1: I never got to see the cockpit of an airliner um, mm. when I was a kid, and so now here I am getting to sit in the jump seat of a KC-30. I don't think I tore myself out of that seat for the full like twenty <laughs> hours of <laughs> yeah. transit just because I just it was unbelievable that I got to sit there and see all the screens. I was absorbing every minute of those radio calls and all that stuff. So um, yeah, we went over there and we we did a, a couple of weeks of tests with the U.S. Navy test centers there. Um, to prove that the p8 was safe to air air refuel behind the kc-30 and um yeah since then that's uh, i've been involved in quite a few air air refueling trials they tried to keep me in that loop as a civilian to retain the corporate knowledge and share it with all the air force dudes that keep posting in and out Mm. um and uh you know i've done an f-22 trial so my my first trial is uh, as a test lead uh, which is a big deal like a first time you are the test director in the air as the test lead knowing everything was was a huge confidence boost and that that was my trial so it was air-to-air refueling with a f-22 so
0: that's crazy um, yeah so that was
1: really cool like that was a what a great plane too another pinch myself moment you know yeah yeah we uh uh, fly to edwards air force base in, in california and um, I'd actually, in my previous job, I'd, I'd helped design the instrumentation that's on the KC-30, so uh, mm. measuring loads on the KC-30 boom. And um, now here I was getting to actually operate that instrumentation and, and direct my first test um, with an that's F-22 awesome. pilot behind us. And I'll uh, oh, oh, never forget that. That was, that was very, very cool and very, very satisfying. Imagine
0: just seeing it close up flying near you and everything as well.
1: They were super secretive, so our... Um, our test plan and stuff had to was all redacted and stuff, so we weren't even allowed oh. to see what, what the F twenty two airplane was capable of uh, refueling wow. to and all that stuff. So we had to uh, try and use get the Americans to <laughs> to, to own that part of the, the test plan, and we just sort of went, we know it's going to be safe, we just don't know what the specific numbers are. And so uh, um. yeah, so the dudes would brief with us, and then they'd go step to the F twenty two on the other side of the uh, the base. And we'd all taxi out together, and then we'd rendezvous in the air. And I just remember that first day when um, they came up for a photo shoot because we needed a safety chase and a photo chase aircraft for the very first. I think it was the very first sortie. Might have been the second. Um, and off the wingtip, like imagine sitting in a seven three seven, looking at the wing, and that just that distance of the wingtip. There's an F twenty two sitting off the wing, just like oh, my that's gosh. crazy. Yeah, you know, drawing all over the window. over just, uh, <laughs> it's uh, amazing. Uh, yeah and, and it's challenging work because um you know you've just helped bring a whole team you've organized the installation of all the instrumentation you've been working with the americans for a couple of weeks or a couple of months i should say um, the logistics get over you got a whole team of people working with you but you're always involved as the test lead and then um once you're there in in country you are briefing a room of 30 people uh trying to tell them all this is how we're going to do this test and here's this young buck flight testing you trying to tell this experienced test pilot and the chief test pilot for f-22 is sitting there and chief engineers over here and uh yeah it's it's daunting but again like test pilot school just slammed into you just get the job done you know has gotta do it you know your stuff don't doubt yourself mm. and don't, don't obviously don't talk crap but um yeah get in there you, you've done all the research all the study you know it. go do it and it's just very very satisfying work. wow and I guess uh since then, yeah, I've done those, but to try and diversify, I've, I've got involved in some, um, I guess, uh, smaller tasks, more like uh, human factors assessments in cockpits like F-18 cockpits and um, C-27. Uh, we did some a, a lot of tests with the C-27 um, performance and handling qualities to help define some stuff that was not in the manual and uh, help design some uh, performance charts. So that was really cool work. And... Uh, I ran a lot of instrumentation and test directing for that trial. A friend was the test lead for that. Uh, and then also, I guess, some uh, uh, just basic trials in King Air or C-130. And, you know, even though I'm not necessarily involved in those tri- in some of these trials, you're, you're always helping others by reviewing their work, reviewing their test plan, reviewing their uh, test report, or being involved in the meetings where they're talking about safety or talking about um, the test matrix that they're going to go fly. So you end up getting involved in other ways. So we've, we've touched on almost all the platforms in defence. And um, I guess uh, the, the last thing i to say is just that we do a lot of our training then in test techniques and, um, air, uh, I guess, your um, aircrew abilities in PC9 and PC21. So I guess that's the, the last sort of aeroplane that we uh, fly fairly regularly
0: sounds like a ton of fun being around all these <laughs> things all the time
1: <laughs> of course that, that's the uh I, I will say that is the uh you know the five ten percent of the job to get to that point we actually get yeah. there is so much pain and heartache and uh, communication <laughs> between organizations and test planning yeah a lot of work
0: still worth it clearly because you're enjoying it
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I love a job. It's still a dream job. Um, every time I do some of this and talk to people about it, it, just refreshes my, uh, zeal for that, uh, for the job and for um, helping all the guys at work and all that. So.
0: Totally. So as the only civilian in this role, how's that differ from say if you were a enlisted member of the RAAF, um, in the same role? Yeah. How's that look for you?
1: So it's interesting. It's both, um, something that frees me to to be yep. uh, more, I guess, direct or objective and, and to be able to talk to people, but it also binds me in some ways. So uh, as a civilian, I am, uh, you know, I, I don't have to call, like there's no thing where I have to call people sir or ma'am or anything like that. So in terms of rank, to me, rank is not a mental barrier where I have to see oh, a group captain walking in the door, um... I'm on my best behaviour or something. You know, there's mm. there's none of that f- for me. I mean, um, you obviously show these people respect they've got to where they've got to um, and they deserve your respect, but um, I can definitely be more person- personable with people uh, and that's probably one of the things that I actually uh, capitalise on slash um, I really enjoy it. I just like being able to talk to, to all these various people of whatever, whether they're... Um, aircraftsman who's uh, working in a logistics cell or a mechanic on the aircraft or the admin clerk or the the ops person who's helping me get flights or it's their COOC or the commander of the uh, the, the um, I guess the group that they're, they're working for so I sort of treat everyone the same and I and I think that that works well as a civilian um, and I guess where where it hurts me a little bit is just that you know, I wear the I wear the flying suit like all the others, but I have a, a little special rank slide which says APS on Air Australian Public Service. And I guess I, I get pinged for not wearing a hat and not saluting and stuff like that because people think uh-huh. I'm military sometimes. So yeah, right. it, there's a bit of that, which um, it, that's not a big issue, but it's sometimes I'm, I'm deep in thought while I'm walking or I'm doing something which an Air Force person wouldn't do, which is like walking along on your phone. <laughs> my, my boss, my boss gets a report saying, "Hey, there was an Argy guy walking around without a hat, or on his phone, or he didn't call this person Sir, or something like that." And, they, and I'm like, "Was it me? It was probably me. What did I? What have I done this time?" So uh, there's a couple of things which, yeah, you, know, you take the good, the bad. It's not, it's not that big mm. thing, but um yeah, and I guess the the main the main reason on there is to to retain that knowledge and share it to the to the others so the APS are filtered throughout all units in defense basically and they um that's what they're there for as the people post in and out they retain the knowledge and they share it and train the new the new Air Force people so that's I've now done just about just under three years at Ardu and I'm now moving towards those mentoring roles where now the challenge for me is to to start training you guys and to you know um let them learn and, and be their their support. So I'll just stand just behind them. Let them do their thing, and then you know not let them fail, but definitely let them um, let them learn a few lessons. Or if, if it's going to work anyway, just let them you know let them go.
0: So what's some of the biggest challenges that you've had as a flight test engineer?
1: Uh, I think that the challenge is that the job is you know really demanding. So especially definitely in the in the and I've heard this from mates who are civilian flight test engineers over at um, in Gulfstream and Bombardier and stuff. But flight test is often the the last thought about thing in a, in a program. It's something which people go, oh, yeah, yeah, don't worry, that'll be fine. And then when they realize, oh, there's a regulatory requirement for us to do test, uh, often it's the last thought about thing, at least thought about as well. Like so they haven't put that much effort into it. So something that I find um, we it is a challenge is fighting for us to not necessarily exist but for what we do to, to, to convince people that what we do is valuable and it is valuable because ultimately uh, in 20 years time when something comes back and say hey this is a problem our reports uh written in you know stone they are you know we did this testing we we followed the regs and this is what we found so that that always something that can be referenced and they need to be completely defensible and unambiguous and so trying to balance the succinctness and quick time frames that they require from us in test while also being um, completely irrefutable and uh, value adding is an accurate and thorough is it's a huge challenge and it's something that you, you get better at over time um, but uh, it's something which hasn't gone away so it's something that every project you know, you're talking time frames immediately. Someone wants this test done done now, and uh, you have to try and balance. It's always that. now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's always now.
0: So, what's your advice for people who want to follow a similar path to you? we sort of talked about it a little bit, but um, yeah, how would you sort of summarize what you think people should do and what p- should people focus on?
1: Yeah, I guess if I was if I was going to summarize and say, uh, firstly. If you're into engineering and aeronautical engineering and you love the flying, um, do both. So definitely keep your PPL um, current and keep flying because definitely in my job day-to-day when I'm operating in the PC-21 or when the KC-30 or whatever, I'm actually understanding what they're talking about on the radios. I'm understanding how to give radio calls. Um, I feel that initial discomfort of being airborne or in, in the aircraft is not there because I've already done it before and I know exactly what the planning should be and what, what is expected of these guys because I'm studying my CPL, I've read the AIP, I, I know what is expected of them. So for me, the edge is, is gone in being an air crew member because I've, uh, uh, I've got that experience. So if I was an engineer who was interested in a flying job like this, I'd, I'd keep flying on the outside or if you're at that stage, you know, maybe go get a couple of lessons prior to applying for a flight test engineer role. Uh, The other thing I'd say is, you know, I already mentioned how there were a few times where I stumbled before getting what I wanted or where I thought I wanted to be. And, you know, I failed a subject at uni which delayed me an extra six months and that led to me being perfectly lined up to get the RG job eventually or the Air Warfare Engineering Squadron job. So there's always a a lot at the end of the tunnel so don't give up when those stumbling when the stumbling occurs and always look for the the extra avenue and something that helps there is communication and, and making contact so um you know don't don't be <laughs> transparent saying i only want to talk to you because you're going to be able to help me in the future but um you know go out and talk to people go out and hang out um at the flying club uh, you'll meet people you know be, be genuine with people if you're interested in this stuff you will generally be interested in airplanes and you want to talk to people about the airplanes. Um, totally. And that's how I ended up scoring the uh, mechanics job. And then while I was there, I you know just made the most of it and talked to as many of those guys as possible and and asked them questions and all that stuff. So just you know, build your network that way in a genuine way um, because if you are interested in this job, you'll be interested in that stuff anyway. So it's not actually a chore. You won't actually realize you're doing any networking. Uh, and those people will be the people that you can rely on, call for advice, all that stuff when things don't necessarily go your way. And I definitely relied on my network um, during the hurdles that I went through to get to where I'm at. Um, I guess the, the other thing to say is, you know, use your enthusiasm and don't shy away from the, the small jobs and the, the crap jobs, whether it's replacing a heater or doing a, a barren bolt or, um, <laughs> or whether, you're, whether you're, all you're doing is assessing a, a glove you know as a flight test job you know it's not necessarily the most glamorous work but you are going to learn um, from that experience you're going to get experience in the processes that you need to do to do that job and also you're going to prove to people who've given you that job that you are worth um, putting on more uh, important work or maybe more fancy work or whatever They'll, they'll see your work ethic in that I think a lot of the guests you've had on this podcast have you know, either said something similar or inadvertently shown through their careers that it's you know, putting those hard yards in no matter what um, uh, perceivably low-level job it might be, uh, that's getting you experience, it's getting you contacts, it's getting you uh, a good credibility to then use when the opportunity does come around. Totally. Um, yeah, and, and I guess uh, if you want to be a flight surgeon in Australia, uh, the way to do it, I think, is to join the Air Force and to um you know go do engineering degree whether it be an Adfa or, or at a civilian university and join the air force and and follow that stream really closely if you're a girl there are some excellent opportunities with um women in flight tests that we're running um and you know stem i think is such an interesting place to be these days so i think uh yeah, if if you were to get and the air force is, is very supportive of all these things. So I think if you get into the air force, you could definitely become a flight test engineer. Pretty, um, I don't want to say guarantee you will be, but you know it's 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 the likely way to get into a flight test engineer job. And I, I don't know what their plan is for civilians. Uh, whether they're going to make more, well, hopefully I've been a good litmus test, and they'll, they'll slowly open the doors to more. But um, everyone overseas uses civilian flight test engineers, so that that mm-hmm. would be the final option, which is always go to overseas and try and work with um, Bombardier, Gulfstream, um, you know some of the small companies that are standing up, UAV, air taxis, that kind of thing.
0: That's true. And if you do and you get into the Air Force and you do it, you might be their mentor.
1: Oh, dude, if I, I, I should be on that wall, like as a, <laughs> I will be there for, forever. So hopefully we'll see <laughs> uh, if they allow me to, if I haven't burnt your bridges by then, who knows. <laughs> hopefully this interview doesn't get me in trouble.
0: So uh, we've gotten to the uh, infamous part of the podcast where I ask, what's your most memorable flight so far? And (sighs) this is now turned into a two-parter where it was originally just a one thing. But um, so this could be either fun or scenic or something like that, but it could also be nail-biting or you could have both.
1: Yeah. So I I guess I've been uh, real lucky in that I don't think I've genuinely had any Nail biting experiences. So I've had. The oh, well, over- I'll
0: get you back on the yeah. podcast once you have. Maybe, nail-biting, nail-biting. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, like, you know, the usual pucker factor of, ah, oh, I should have turned around or that gap in the cloud was quite small. Yeah, there's that yeah. kind of thing. But um, <laughs> I guess I'd I, I split it into to two the GA and the military flying. And I guess, um, you know, I, I talked about my grip in flight. That was probably the most accelerating thing I've ever done in an airplane. That was just unbelievable. It was. Mm. <sighs> Just for the whole time, it was just you know the throttle was pretty much maxed out. And, you know, it's a light aircraft with no tank, no tanks on it, so it was doing max performance handling that whole time. Seven G, wow. it was just ridiculous. And you're wearing a full full body suit, which seven uh, G doesn't actually feel like seven G because it's you know not only the legs and the the, the thighs and your yeah. your yeah, it's it's all the way up your body and your arms as well. So uh, yeah, that was ridiculous. But I, I think the the military flight, which is memorable, and this might be funny. For people to hear is just um on that t38 flight my final preview flight at tps uh, you know i've I'd, I'd never made I've, I've never made a mistake like this in the air before and it was the final flight where i'm actually collecting data for my final project and i dropped the uh the tape measure that i'm supposed to use for measuring <laughs> control deflections and you're strapped into an ejection seat and you're in an airplane which is already fuel critical just known to be fuel critical so you can't waste your time I've got a, a deck of about 60 test cards to try and flip through and write down data and test all these different test points. And we get airborne flawlessly. I did this climb test point. I was on top of the world. I was like, this is the most basic of basic test points, just measuring stick deflection. It's supposed to be the stupidest, simplest job that you can do. And I pull <laughs> out the tape measure and I'm trying to stick it to the have the center console and I drop it. And it's at my feet. And I'm like, oh wait a minute, I can't get that. My shoulder harness uh. is holding me and strapped me in. You, you can't reach it. My foot, I couldn't move my legs. It's such a tight cockpit, couldn't get it up my leg or anything like that. I'm like, oh no, what now? And the, the, test, the <laughs> test pilot, test pilot's an instructor from US Navy TPS, and he's now saying, uh, is everything back there? I went, uh, is everything okay back there? I, went, uh, I dropped my tape measure. He goes, oh, can you get it? No. Nah. "Huh." Well, we can't land because you don't want that fod." drifting forward under the pedals or anything like that and we can't continue tests because we can't have he can't get the tape measure so in the end we end up uh safing the seats um i undid one shoulder strap reached down picked it up tucked it away safely and then i couldn't get my shoulder strap on because it was a u.s uh a u.s clip that i never used before a united Uh. states style clip and i he eventually figured out that i had it around the wrong way and we flipped Fixed it all up, um, saved the seats. Sorry, uh, put the seats live again, and then uh, continued. And I got the test point done, but it was in total it was like an eight minute delay to a sorting which was which was <laughs> supposed to be one point one. So, I but then uh, miraculously I got through every test card, got all the data done, and when we landed, the pilot said, "I didn't think we would finish that." I didn't, and the only wow. thing I missed out on was that we were supposed to do some. Uh, max roll rate. Just have some fun in the aeroplane for five minutes at the very end. So unfortunately, I missed it. Missed Your out. fun
0: was uh, picking up the measuring tape. <laughs> That's
1: right. <laughs> well, the fun was uh, as we were about to join base to land, we did a full uh, aileron roll from uh, like full 360 aileron roll uh, just before we joined cool. the circuit, and that was that was my roll rate test. So. See,
0: so, yeah, I thought um, you were going to say I had to pick up the tape measure. And your pilot was like, oh, well, that's all right. And then just inverted the plane. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: it, it's really funny. You do Problem a FOD, you, you actually do that most missions. The first thing you do is you get airborne and roll inverted to make sure there's no FOD in the cockpit. And I've had to cancel oh, right. a few sorties because there has been uh, FOD. But, uh, yeah, you don't know where it, If I had positive control on that tape measure, you don't want to uh, let it go free. So. Yeah, So it might get somewhere else, like stuck in the ejection seat. So.
0: Yeah, that would be bad. Yeah.
1: yeah, um, And then I guess, look, the, the last thing I'll say is just uh, any any GA fly, like I found this year, especially with COVID, uh, I found great joy and, and renewed my my love of GA. And uh, so anytime I fly a Cessna or whatever and go somewhere and see, uh, go for a holiday, we just got back from near Bundaberg the last weekend. Awesome. So, you know, that's that's a great flight, and then I, I've been really lucky. Um, I've got an FAA PPL as well, so I, I did some flying and went to the Wright Brothers Field in um, on the East Coast, and then also did that's the New York, cool. yeah, and I did the New York um, Hudson River Run at a uh, thousand feet and went straight wow. up the, the river and back. So. Yeah, and Statue of Liberty and stuff. So, yeah, those would be my memorable flights. I think.
0: Yeah, I saw some of those on your blog, and uh, <laughs> I thought they looked awesome. I was like, I gotta ask him about the Wright Brothers, ah. and Kitty Hawk, and yeah. <laughs> they're they're so,
1: they're so accessible. I don't know why. Like, America is so accessible for us. that the process to get your FAA PPL is super easy and yeah, right. Better than dealing any any dealings with with CASA I've ever had for a license. Like um, the FAA one was super simple. It cost me it would cost me nothing on the FAA side. It cost me 50 bucks to have CASA release my license to the FAA, but um, that's not a discussion I should get into with a (laughs) podcast. And uh, they, um, yeah, just rocked up and they handed me the license. And I was like, there it is. Yeah, obviously, you don't do anything stupid. You go and go go for a fly with an instructor to make sure you know the the rules and how to read their maps and their processes and all that. But super simple.
0: Well, there you go. People should definitely do that, hey?
1: Yeah, 100%. When we're allowed to go back there
0: that's true Uh, well or me in melbourne allowed to go anywhere (laughs) anywhere (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just going to be a ton more podcast episodes before i'm allowed to go anywhere so (laughs) it's my life now it'll keep you
1: busy
0: (laughs) (laughs) so what would your dream flight you could take just for fun be
1: so, I, I split this into two real quickly, and sorry, dude, I went uh, blabber on. But uh, <laughs> I <all> thought right. <laughs> my my dream, the dream flight that I think I could do someday potentially, who knows where I could go based on my flight test engineering, would be something that allows me to go high enough to see the curvature of the Earth and see the mm. and start to see the blackness of space. That's I've always wanted to do it, whether it's a a U-2 or you know maybe in 20 years there's some space vehicle I get to test or something go work for Virgin Galactic or something
0: maybe in 20 years they'll all be privately owned like you or you have privately owned U-2s or something and yeah, you know be like old warbirds
1: <laughs> that's it so I think that you know that'd be the, the one work-wise and then I think um some that I'm working towards or maybe I do it in snippets is is around the world flight I'd, I'd love to uh I have my in-laws are in California so I'd love to buy an airplane there Something that'd, that'd do the trip. Uh, and I'd do single engine, I think. And, and what I'd love to is spend a year, you know, just slowly traipsing across the US, visiting all those diners with burgers and stuff, and then That's fly cool. across, you know, Greenland and Europe and back to Australia with that airplane. So,
0: yeah. Nice. That's very cool. Everyone always wants to do the around the world trip. I, I know ask it every time and everyone's like, around the world. It's either that or seaplanes. <laughs>
1: yeah, I actually want to do it in a seaplane, but I know Dan Bolton stole
0: that idea, so I can't say that one. Uh, and um, and Bevan Anderson last week was like, yeah, and an albatross, you know, kitted out yes, and everything. Yes, and I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think I would also like to do that. I think everyone wants to do that. So <laughs> it's very yeah. cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show and uh, sharing your journey and your journey into uh, aeronautical engineering and the course you took and giving advice to people if they want to become a flight test engineer. I think it's a really unique sort of set of things that you've done to be where you are today. And so I think it's really cool and valuable for people to have a listen to.
1: No, man, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity because I think, uh, like I said to you in an email, this podcast really helped me get through some downtimes in COVID and remind me of how good the aviation industry is and all of us who fly in it and and engineer in it and anything else we all do to, to keep it afloat. So the more stories people get through this podcast is going to be really good. So thanks for the opportunity.
0: Oh, no worries. And yeah, I think it definitely has showed me how um, willing everyone is to share their stories and, you know, hopefully encourage other people to do stuff. So
1: yeah, hopefully, Hopefully people think engineering is
0: cool now too. I think it's cool. <laughs>
1: that's, all, that's all that matters. My bum says I'm cool.
0: So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Chris says I'm cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks again. Thanks for coming on. Bye, right, man. Cheers. Thanks for listening to episode 10 of Up and Away. Like I said earlier, thanks so much for your support until now. Making the last 10 episodes for you all has been an absolute blast. Don't forget to subscribe as well as follow us on Facebook and Instagram and I'll see you next week.